Welcome back. David Penn, the Professor Penn Podcast. And today we'll start with a prayer. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Thank you. Uh, I know it's not traditionally thought of as a prayer, but it's a nice way to start the podcast. It gets me focused on what I'm doing here. I want to thank Free People Radio, as always, for providing me with this platform. Tireget.com, T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com, Tireget, for all your tire needs. 14,000 tires in stock. You buy your tires, you support the movement. It's a win-win, great idea. PrecinctStrategy.com for a tutorial on how to get in the game of politics. Lots of complaining. That's not very productive. Productive is get off the bench, get in the game. That's what the Professor Penn Podcast is all about, getting us all in the game. Well, welcome back. How are you doing? Hope you're feeling well. It's nice to see you here again. Uh, have a lot of thoughts since I saw you last about uh, what we're doing here. What, what are we doing? And how are we going to get to a uh, well-being culture and in an environment in which there is uh, human dignity and human freedom? Because we're a long way from that right now. We're struggling. And uh, it's a world of ideas. We're struggling because in the world of ideas, traditional ideas or the ideas that have undergirded our culture for thousands of years are being overthrown by a new idea. Uh, I'm going to read something from John Locke. He's a famous British philosopher. Locke is big. If you never heard his name before, again, as I like to say, you gotta, you got to discover it for yourself. I can point some directions, but I think this is a very interesting quote. The word reason in the English language, language has different significances. Sometimes it is taken for true and clear principles, sometimes for clear and fair deductions from those principles, and sometimes for cause, and particularly the final cause. But the consideration I shall have of it here is in a, significant, a signification different from all of these, and that is, as it stands for the faculty of man, the faculty whereby man is supposed to be distinguished from the beasts and wherein it is evident that he much surpasses them. There's a lot to unpack in this statement. On the one hand, we do have reason. And what John Locke is saying is it makes us surpass the beasts. We do have reason and we don't use it very well, which I'd like to talk a little bit about today. That's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is, is when you have reason and you use it, arrogance is the little twin of reason, the arrogance of man. So in everything, there's two sides. We, gotta, we get a benefit of reason. What's the cost? Well, one of the costs is arrogance, that we think our reason 
the reason of man is the most powerful faculty in creation. And that would be obscuring or or occluding or eliminating the faith in the in the supremacy of God's world. So we have to look at these things very carefully. But when we talk about reason or being reasonable, wow, that's a big subject. I'm going to go a little bit off script and talk about something, again, I alluded to in my last podcast. I got into a discussion, which is a nice way of saying argument, with the Republican Party officer, a fellow officer, a brother of the spear, so to speak. And this, this uh, officer was taking a very pro-Ukraine war position. And I listened to him. And basically, uh, his position was Putin bad, Putin's expansionist. If we don't stop Putin in Ukraine, he's going to attack Poland, take over Poland. You know, he was in this expansionist theory. It's a little bit like we had in the 1950s and 60s about the need to contain communism. It's the same idea, containment. Containment through all kinds of various means, political, economic, military. And I went through the, the history of wars with Russia. Like if we were talking, I'd go, okay. There, we, we did this on a podcast. The British fought a war with the Russians in 1807. The French and the British and the Turks fought a war with Russia in 1853. Russia was occupied by foreign powers in, at, the, at the, like, 1918, 1919. Hundreds of thousands of troops, not a couple. I mean, the country was taken over. The Cold War. Now this Ukraine thing. I mean, these wars have all taken place in Russia or on Russia's borders. So I was trying to make the case that actually from the Russian perspective, historically, the Russians would believe that the West was attacking them. And maybe we should think about that. Put ourselves in the shoes of the other guy. Walk a mile in his moccasins. Maybe we'll understand something. Get on the other street corner. Look at the accident from the other side of the street. What could we learn? He said a very interesting thing to me. He said, history doesn't matter. And he said it over and over again, as if he could brainwash me with this comment, history doesn't matter. Now, the fact that this guy was ex-Army intelligence and was, you know, was speaking to me in a way that I was stupid because he thinks I am stupid, uh, he had never talked to me before, so he hadn't run into something like me. I'm a different kind of animal that's prowling around in the pasture now. They're not used to this, these people that lead the party. The neocons, uh, you know, it's not personal. I don't dislike or like the guy. I just don't think people within the party structures should stand up with the sole intent of brainwashing the people. Because when you make a comment, history doesn't matter. I don't care about history. That's completely unreasonable. That's, there's no reason in that. That's a refutation of what John Locke said, distinguishes us from the beasts. We have a memory, and we have reason. And when we negate those, when we say that they don't matter, that reason doesn't matter, 
someone, in this case, this gentleman I was speaking with, and I use the phrase gentleman quite loosely, he was actually trying to negate my reason and turn me into a beast. And what do we do with beasts? We cage them, we control them, and we slaughter them. So this is a kind of model that I have to reject, and I have to reject it up front and very directly. History does matter. We need to know the history of this country. We, know, we need to know the history of our world. We need to know how other people think about history so that we can actually build a constituency that is beyond the little narrow ledge of 50-50 that the parties find themselves in. We don't have a broad-based constituency in this country. We have a lot of fighting. We have a lot of anger and a lot of polarization. And when people stand up in front of the crowd and say, history doesn't matter, oh, that's like throwing gasoline on a fire. So I must reject this. And if this person hears me, he's more than welcome to come on. He knows who he is. He will remember. I'm not mentioning names because it's unnecessary. This person knows who I am. I'd love to have him on. In fact, I'm going to invite anyone in the Republican Party or the Democrat Party, both parties, that would like to have a debate. I'd like your five best champions that are in favor of this war in the Ukraine. Give me five people. I'll come by myself. It'll be five to one. I think that's going to even it up. Let's sit down and talk about it. Live stream in front of the American people about how this war is benefiting American citizens. Because also this gentleman said, when I asked him, how is it benefiting me? He said, trade, trade, international trade. We're protecting our interests. So in addition to constraining the territorial ambitions of this terrible person, Vladimir Putin, we're also protecting our trade. What trade? We don't have any trade. We've lost all of our trade to the Chinese. They've undercut us. They've outworked us. I don't know what, what we have left. Oh, you know, some military. Oh, we got great trade military. The last bastion of American trade supremacy is weapons. That would mean that the trade we're protecting is the very war we're fighting. Something to think about as the American people. Do we want a business model that our country stands upon an industry that depends on the killing of other people. Is that the business model that I want? That you want that business? Do you want your sustenance and your wealth and your viability as an American to rest upon forever wars for the killing of people, for the creation of weapons that are progressively more effective and efficient in their mission, which is killing? Do we want to live in that country? Do we want to live in that world? Where did this idea come from? You know, when I was growing up, I was a little kid. Right after World War II, oh, I loved the military. I used to make model planes, and I used to have toy soldiers. And I, I, loved, I loved the military so much, I got involved in military matters. And then I look back at it, and I think to myself, it's very important that I know how to defend myself. I only depend on myself for my own safety, and I think that's self-governance. 
And I do believe that we need to have a a government that provides for the common defense, the common defense, as it says in our founding documents. We need to have a military. We need to have a border. We're over defending Ukraine's borders militarily, financially, and we have plenty of mercenaries, American mercenaries fighting in the country, and our southern border is wide open. We know this. This is an old an old thing. But I'm talking about the core idea that we are policing the world, that we have 350 18-hole golf courses that the Pentagon runs around the world for our troop, that we're in dozens of countries with military, that we're dropping bombs every few seconds somewhere. And what's the benefit to me or my children? Is this in really increasing my security? Or as Noam Chomsky said, if you want to deal with the, in, the, the, the issue of terrorism, quit being a terrorist. Quit participating in terrorism. So that's my preamble today. I would like people to discuss this. In fact, at the next meeting, I urge all of you, if you're active in either the Democrat or Republican Party, the people with that you sit down with to hold the meeting, ask them, do you support the war in Ukraine? Are you willing to die for the Ukrainians in that war? Are you willing to see your children killed in a nuclear exchange to defend the borders of the Ukraine? Is it that important to us? I'd like to know. And I'd like to talk it through because I'm going to make it very clear and share with you, talking right to you now. I don't want my children to die in a nuclear war in Europe on the border of Russia. I don't want that. We're knocking on their door. They're not down in Mexico. They're not in Cuba like during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We're on their border. When I say we, we the, we the people are funding a war, and there's mercenaries there, and we're providing all kinds of intelligence and command and control and weaponry right on Russia's border. And we're just taking this as it's okay. We're out of our minds. We've lost it. We've gone insane because we've let people drive us insane. This is completely wrong from my perspective, and we need to think about we the people, how we've been dumbed down, how our people are in poverty, how the vast majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, how we hate each other, how we're divided, polarized, running a deficit, $32 trillion in debt. We've got problems to solve in our own home. Our own American home is in tatters. So instead of dealing with that, for the benefit of a very few people, we're fighting on Russia's border. I reject it utterly, and I'm inviting you to debate it with me. This is an open invitation to anyone from any station, from the Secretary of State down to the janitor, Anybody wants to talk to me about this issue, I'll be there. And on that note, let's talk about what's going on. It would be called escalation. Tanner, can you play this uh, piece with the uh, F-16, this, this first bit here? F-16 footage, one minute long. The F-16 is the first aircraft to use a fly-by-wire control system that helps make it an agile aircraft. 
It is also the first aircraft purpose-built to withstand 9G forces during high-angle maneuvers, permitting its pilots to really dig deep into their acrobatic skills and make the most of them. The fighter has a structural life of 8,000 flight hours on internal fuel. This endurance allowed for the aircraft's mission change from solely air-to-air -air combat to multi-role operations. Other innovations introduced by the F-16 include a frameless bubble canopy for better visibility, a side-mounted control stick, and a reclined seat to reduce G-force effects on the pilot. All of these while remaining much smaller, much lighter, and less expensive than its predecessors. What an advertisement. It's like the ad for Skyrizi from the last podcast. That's fantastic, isn't it? It's a killing machine. Fantastic. It's the highest level of what we got here in the United States. Well, actually, it's not. That jet fighter actually was a fourth-generation jet fighter. It was first produced in 1976. It's quite old. We're on, we're on to the sixth generation they're working on now. You know, kind of a space, space machines. But this is a very potent weapon. And, uh, well, they didn't want to give it to the Ukrainians because they were afraid of escalation. But, hey, we're in the ladder of escalation. And where does the ladder lead to? Nuclear war. And nothing seems to be stopping our leaders. They don't. Do you hear anything about peace talks? I want you to think back about every war that we've ever been in or been around your entire life, my entire life. Every time there's been a war in my lifetime, there's always been peace talks or talk of peace or how we're going to get out of the war. There's always been some kind of comment about how do we get beyond where we're at. Not this time. This time, our leadership is committed to the destruction of the Russian Federation. Oh, I wonder how that's going to end up for me. How's it going to end up for you? Do you like running water? How about heat? How's heat work for you? Are you set up that if there's a nuclear exchange and there's no comms and there's no heat and no water, are you prepared to survive that? That's a pregnant pause so you can think it through. Because I know I've got a garden. I've got food, storable food, lots of it. I got water. You got weapons? Are you, well, are you ready to defend yourself against roving bands of survivors that are starving to death? You know, it's a very unpretty world. And it's unnecessary. We are not fighting to defend ourselves. We are fighting in the British model to defend Britain's vision of the world island the McKinder theory, a British geologist who was funded by the crown in the late 1800s, oh, about the time of Darwin, contemporaries. And I've said this many times, he came up with this idea that whoever controls the world island controls the world. And whoever controls the heartland controls the world island. And guess what the heartland is? It's the Ukraine. And that's why the Ukraine has been fought over and pissed on Forever. It's a very strategic area. But it's not a strategic to we the people. Because McKinder said that 50% of the world's resources were in the world island. 
and the British wanted to control that. And we, after World War II, picked up the mantle of the British Empire in the West and the mantle of the Japanese Empire in the East. We, we the people, became the empire. Oh, what brilliance that was. And why did it happen? Because our intellectual elites were penetrated by the European intellectual tradition. We've never had an authentic American foreign policy. We've never had an authentic American domestic policy. All we've done is reproduce the shitty system of slavery, drugs, and piracy that our forebears came and ran to this country to get away from. We tried desperately to get divorced from these Europeans, and we failed. So for those of you who have been divorced, and I know that's many, uh, you know what, there's a certain point that comes after a long period of adjustment where you're no longer involved substantially, generally speaking, you're no longer substantially involved with your ex-spouse because you're divorced. That's the point of getting divorced, to go a new direction, to start a new life, to start over, to extricate yourself from a system that was making you feel like you wanted to die. Why are we not getting divorced from the intellectual tradition that we ran away from? And that's because our ex-spouse, the Europeans, they don't want to let us go. They're sickos. They want to make sure they dominate us in every possible way. So they've taken over our universities, and then the students from the universities took over our high schools, and then their students have taken it over all the way down to the kindergarten. And everybody agrees on environmentalism, on social equity, and democracy. When I say everybody, I mean everybody in that educational system agrees on the post-World War II Democrat-liberal order. And I'm going to say to you, it's a failed ideology. It's not working for me. And I want to ask you, is it working for you? I don't have any money in the bank. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I wear a suit because I'm respecting you. But doesn't mean I'm rich. It just means I respect you. Well, actually, I'm trying to respect myself too. If you notice, I wear the same suits over and over again because I don't have the money to buy new suits. That's because there's no money. I can't get any money no matter how hard I work. I reject this model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. I reject it in every aspect that I find it in American society. And I'm asking you to join me in a new political movement of free people where we establish authentic American ideas, authentic American rituals, authentic American holidays where we come together and we end this disunity, which is the cornerstone of the British strategy. Make people hate each other and you can rob them. While they're killing each other, you can control them. God forbid, from the perspective, well, these people don't believe in God. Satan forbid that the people actually come together and form a nation 
with unity and with well-being as the cornerstone and reject slavery, drugs, and piracy, that would screw up people's money-making, wouldn't it? Because if we got along with each other, there'd be a lot less disease. There'd be a lot less lawyering that needed to be done because we could work things out peacefully amongst ourselves. A lot of the revenue streams would start to dry up. Like, for example, $1.1 trillion going to the military, which is terrorizing people all over the world. Or $1.6 trillion for the medical industrial complex with 60% of our fellow citizens with chronic disease. And that means Democrats, Republicans, and independents. You know, disease doesn't, doesn't respect political parties. It would be very interesting, though, if we could create a political movement that was focused on well-being and we started to be healthier, and that was a benefit of our political ideology. I know this sounds a little far-fetched, but it's not. It's not far-fetched. It's how we talk to each other. It's the rituals that we share with each other. It's the expectations we have of our government and of each other. We could actually create well-being in place of, let's say, gun violence. We could do it. Now, escalation, this F-16, they're going to give these, they're they're training Ukrainian F-16 pilots. Well, that's the story. Actually, they're setting up a mercenary air force now because the Russians, contrary to everything you're reading in the newspapers and hearing in the mainstream media, they're not as organized as people thought it we're gonna, they were going to be, and they're probably not as organized as the Russians thought they were going to be. But they're getting organized. It's like any war. It takes practice. You know, the only warfighting group in the world that's really organized, that'd be our U.S. military, because we've been fighting wars constantly. You can't become a good warfighting unit unless you're fighting wars, because wars are, you know, quite complex. So because our military has been in constant conflict constantly forever, we're the top dog, and we got the most money put into it. But the Russians are trying to make a comeback, figure out how to do it, and guess what? They're making progress. So what our leadership is doing, because while they tell us the Russians are losing, they're escalating because the Russians actually are quite an implacable foe. Let's go back to my favorite Quentin Tarantino character, Prigozhin, who is the leader of the Wagner Mercenary Army, a Russian mercenary army that fights as a proxy for the Russian Federation. Let's listen to Prigozhin. He'd be such a great movie character if it wasn't so real. On the fall of Bakhmut, please, Tanner, can you play this two-minute piece? 20th May, 2023, this afternoon at 12 p.m., Bakhmut was completely taken. The last section of the so-called Somalet district The operation to capture the Bakhmut lasted 224 days. Begin on the 8th of October, 2022. 
прийти в себя. Вагнер came in to give the battered Russian army a chance to recover. Thanks to General Sergei Sorovkin and General Mezentsev, who gave him the chance to carry out this difficult operation. Thank you to Vladimir Putin for giving Wagner the opportunity to, and the high honor to defend the motherland. We fought not only with the Ukrainian armed forces, but also Wagner fought with the Russian bureaucracy, which threw sand in the wheels of Wagner. Wagner will create the necessary defense lines to defend Bakhmut, and they'll hand it over to the Russian military so that they can continue to deal with it. Wagner will go to field camps and then back to their families and to their country. And that Wagner will return again and protect when necessary and if necessary. And with no sarcasm, he's congratulating the Ukrainians for fighting bravely. They'll be the second most, the Ukrainians will be the second most powerful army in the world behind Wagner. He's complimenting the uh, army that he defeated. Uh, Tanner, this this map, can you put this up just so people can see it? Uh, this eastern uh, Ukrainian region, if you can just make that a little bit bigger, people can see it. The red area is the area of Russian control. This is the eastern Ukraine. This is the f- region of the Ukraine that's the closest to the Crimea, which was also formerly part of Ukraine, but the people in the Crimea after Russia occupied it, voted to join the Russian Federation. And this red area, the the eastern Ukraine, is predominantly Russian-speaking, and the Russians have taken control of this region. Now, this is a perfect moment for a settlement. And if anybody had any brains, eh, it's not brains. If anybody had any heart to stop this escalation, which leads to nuclear war, or at least leads to unending conflict in Europe. This would be a perfect place to stop. The Russians have now consolidated this region, and these people could be allowed uh, to have a plebiscite and to vote, and they would most likely vote that they would like to be part of the Russian Federation. And we could throw our hands up and say, oh, that's the end of this. And we could go on to the next problem that's going to pop up because there will be another problem. But this this leadership that we have in the West is actually marshalling the forces to counterattack and to try to expel the Russians from this Russian-speaking area of the Ukraine. And let's remember the Ukraine has been mostly part of Russia, for a big part of history. So we're really fighting from the perspective of the Russians inside of Russia. Do you think this kind of triggers them like 1807 and 1853 and 1919 where Western forces fought in Russia and plundered the country? you think this triggers them? Do you think they're willing to fight to the death to defend their own country? Do you know any Russians? Do you know Russians? I know Russians. 
I know them. I know they're willing to die to defend their country. Unlike a lot of Americans that don't like America, Russian people love their country. I had a friend of mine, very, very, very close friend of mine, come back. He, he took a quick trip to Israel. And what shocked him was how much people there loved Israel. You know, we're living in a country where we've been taught to hate our country. We've been taught to hate it. And who taught us? Oh, intellectuals from the European intellectual tradition. Doesn't that kind of piss you, pisses me off? Does this piss you off that you are spending money or you're sending your children even to high school, public high school, and the teachers there are teaching your children and my children to hate our country, and they were taught how to do this by an intellectual tradition that came from Europe, and we're over there bailing these people out? What kind of scam is this? We have been, we the people, have sacrificed our sons and our daughters in World War One, in World War Two. deployments throughout the Cold War, and now this Ukrainian disaster, we're continuously bailing these Europeans out while they attempt the British intellectual tradition, the European intellectual tradition, to overthrow everything that was American about America, what we would call American exceptionalism. And what was American exceptionalism? Self-governance, freedom, the freedom to create prosperity and peace. They don't like that because when people are free and prosperous, they're not under control. See, that's what this is all about. It's about control. I want to swear, because this makes me so mad, but instead I'm going to try to speak eloquently and not lose my voice. This person I was speaking about earlier who had this argument with me, who told me to forget about history. I don't care about history. You know, I asked him a little bit about himself. And you're not going to know who he is, so I can tell you what he told me. Because he's kind of hiding in a corner somewhere, directing traffic. He's kind of leading from behind. I don't know how influential he is. But he didn't know who I was. And when I told him my name, he was a little bit surprised. Because, see, here in Minnesota, I'm notorious. Among certain groups, people love me. Some people don't love me. I'll tell you who doesn't love me. It's all the people that are defending piracy, drugs, and slavery. That would be the uni party. That's their business model. And they got their model from the old country. And I don't remember exactly what I was told. I think he might have said he was born in Australia and his mother was British. Do you think that gives him a predisposition to being involved in European affairs? I would say it probably does. So, you know, there's all these people in our society that are saying, oh, the Catholics, this would be like the uh, know-nothings, the Catholics, the popery. They're not loyal to America. They're loyal to the Pope. You know, John Kennedy had to put that issue to sleep in 1961 when he was trying to become the president because he was the first Catholic president. And he actually had a state that he was loyal to the Constitution of the United States and not to the Pope. Okay. So there was a lot of energy making Catholics disloyal. 
A lot of energy went into that. They're not loyal to America. We can't. Oh, and then there was the McCarran, the McCarran Act, 1952. We can't let all these Jewish people in here, these Marxists. They're not loyal to the Constitution of the United States. And still we hear this today, that there's certain groups not loyal to, like Muslim groups. I'm hearing a lot in the, in the party. Oh, these Muslim groups, they're not loyal to the United States of America. They're loyal to Sharia law. They want to overthrow America. What about these people that are loyal to the British intellectual tradition of godlessness, faithlessness, science, eugenics? We just went through a whole podcast about the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, their involvement with the Nazis. We've talked about Operation Paperclip and how our military intelligence people brought Nazis into our government and into our universities. Maybe they were Nazis to start out with, and they were just bringing their operatives home. The U.S. High Commission, pardoning people that were Nazis and bringing them to Columbia University. What about these people and their loyalty? What are they loyal to? What are they loyal to? One can ask the question, if we're going to question the loyalty of Catholics, and we're going to question the loyalty of Jews, and we're going to question the loyalty of Muslims, what was Governor George Romney talking about in the 1964 Republican Convention about the know-nothings? What are they loyal to? These are questions we need to ask. And the reason we need to ask it is we have no unity in the country. Why are some countries so united and America so divided? Well, an easy answer is we're a multicultural society. We haven't integrated all these different groups into one idea. That, that's a reasonable, you know, we, we're not one ethnicity. The Russians are really an ethno-nationalist state. They're all Russians. They're Slavs. The same thing with the Chinese. There's no Barack Obamas coming up in the pipeline in China, I can assure you. But, you know, it's so interesting how material that is because the unity of those countries is generated by their ethnicity, their flesh, their material, their materiality. We have an opportunity in this country, should we pick up a book and read it, turn off a cartoon, talk one to another, to be united by reason, by ideas, by faith, by the word. It's so much more powerful than mere materiality. But like everything else, there's a yin and a yang. There's a benefit and there's a cost. And that's what we need to be thinking about. There's the benefit of the ideas that could and might bind us together, which would be the Constitution of the United States and our founding documents. Oh, that's the only place we have to look. In fact, I'm going to go back and read this again. Please humor me. I want to read this one more time because I can't think of a more eloquent prose, then we 
hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governance, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Well, we don't have to look any farther than that. Isn't that good enough to bind us together? I think it is. I think we need to get back to what they no longer teach in school. You know, I think in some of the schools, they don't do the pledges, the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. I mean, can we have a Pledge of Allegiance to start our meetings? Seems very reasonable. How do we come together? What rituals, what holidays do we need to restore, to rebuild, to regrow? Be an American. How do we get divorced from these intellectual traditions that are really anti-American, and what's the evidence? We hate each other, and we hate each other precisely because of what we've been taught about each other. And who taught us? Our elite academics. <coughs> there it goes. Boy, when I, I get so mad about this, because as you know, I come out of that academic background. And it makes me so angry that these people have put so much into destroying the unity of the people. Now, I went to an event this past weekend on Saturday, and it was a, an event that was um, dedicated to talking about election integrity. This was kind of a watershed event. This was a Republican Party event. Little history. Last February, when the snow was everywhere and it was cold, <clears throat> I went out with a very senior leader of the Republican Party. Very senior, very important. And, you know, he was with me because I'm quite active, as you know, and some of you get to spend time with me, and I want more of you to spend time with me because Free People of America is a movement. We're going to be starting a statewide Zoom call soon for people that are interested. We haven't, we're going to have a newsletter. We're going to have a website. You're going to be able to be in a constant dialogue with other people that like this content. And if you like this content, please send it out to other activists because we need a community. And when I say Minnesota, if you're listening to me and you're in Pennsylvania, Minnesota is just a, an example. Politics is local. We need 50 chapters, 50 chapters of people in 50 states and it's out there. It's already well underway. You know, Dan Schultz with the Precinct Strategy, that's proliferated. My friend Steve Stern is running national Zoom calls. I mean, there's all kinds of activity that three years ago nobody had even, had, nobody had even thought of it. So much creativity is pouring forth as a response to what's happening. Now, we're very late to the game. What we're learning is self-governance is a 24-hour-a-day seven-day-a-week job. I think there's a, an idiom. Uh, strong men make peaceful and prosperous times. P 
peaceful and prosperous times make weak men. Weak men create dangerous and disorganized times. Dangerous and disorganized times bring forth strong men. It's a cycle. History is not a line, a straight line. That's what the progressives want to tell us. Oh, my military intelligence friend who's in the party. I don't care about history. He takes it a step farther. The progressives want to convince us that that history is a straight line, that time is a straight line. But we know that it's actually cyclical. It's repeating. That's why we study history. So if you can convince people not to study history, they will always be a victim of leadership. I reject that. But please come on and talk to me about it. I welcome you. I know you're brave because you're military. So I know you have bravery. Please come on. Let's, let's debate and let all the people hear the debate. And if I lose the debate, I'll learn a lot. I'm not afraid to lose. In fact, in pursuing the truth, I'm willing to lose. That's another thing that's banging around in the parties. It's all about winning. You know, what is it to win and lose your soul? What is it to gain the world and lose your soul? That's not where we want to go. We want to tell the truth and live and leave the winning and losing in the hands of the Creator. We need to tell the truth. That's what leaders do. Tell the truth. And if we win or lose, that's in the hands of the Creator. I'm, I'm okay with that. So if I have a debate, I want your five best. I want the five best neocons in the Republican Party. Oh, and at this meeting, there was a Democrat there, a senior Democrat. He came. I don't know how he got there. I suppose our data lists are so good, we're inviting Democrats. But that's fine. It, it needs to be open to everybody because we need cross-party pollination. And I asked him, I said, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, the Democrat Party was driven by Anti-war liberalism, the Noam Chomsky's, anti-war, anti-Vietnam war in that case, anti-military industrial complex, anti the British model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. That's who these people were back in about, oh, I don't know, 67, 68 through 73. People were out in the streets every weekend. The universities were on fire. And I said to this Democrat, how do you square as a Democrat? Because he was about my age, so he remembered this. How do you square a party that's the liberal roots of the Democrat Party was non was nonviolence. It was anti-war. It was called the anti-war movement. That's what made the modern Democrat Party, that and the civil rights movement. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, Putin's a bad man. We have to fight him you know, like a robot. You know, if, if we're going to be subject to mind control, could we please be subject to the mind control of well-being? I mean, if it's going to come down to brainwashing, right? How about a creator in well-being as opposed to a man in charge who's interested in killing everybody? I mean, if we have to get it down to that level, let's choose our brainwashing wisely. Because, of course, they think from their street corner, those of us that believe in a creator, 
are brainwashed. And we think on our street corner, those of us that believe in a creator, we think these anti-God people are brainwashed. So both groups think the same thing about each other. So let's start to mix and talk. Because while we're separated one from another and we can't talk, the hatred just builds up. So I said to this Democrat, let's have non-party-affiliated town halls. You bring your people. We'll bring our people. We'll sit and talk. Unity. I'll go by myself. I'll take, I'll go into a room of 50 Democrats. I'll listen to what they say. I'm not afraid to be there. Can we set that up, please? Could we start to talk? Because what we really need is unity. And I went to this, uh, this uh, election event which I'm going to go back to this party leadership guy. You know, I don't forget. I know I'm meandering. You know, I know some people don't like this because I meander around, but I think it's fun telling stories. I like telling stories. You know, it's, it's, it's fun to tell stories and it's fun to listen to people tell stories. One of the things I noticed at this event is that the people that spoke were generally not very eloquent. How did Barack Obama get elected to the presidency? This guy is a great public speaker. He can sell you S-H-I-T on a cracker and convince you it's caviar. Hey, that's a skill. That's high skill. I respect it. I enjoy listening to Barack Obama speak because he's high skill. What's the point of politics? Well, we want to convince other people that are Ideas are the best ideas. To do this, you must be able to speak eloquently and to tell a story. So I am practicing my storytelling skills and my elocution talking to you, and thank you for listening. So when you come into party activism, this is a chance for you to practice your public speaking skills. Because if we can't sell, we can't win. And even more importantly, If we have nothing to sell, we can't win. So the first step is to have a product. And the second step is to have good salesmen. And I was sitting there with this party leader who is, you know, he's relatively eloquent. I don't agree with a lot of the things that he believes, and that's okay. This is America, after all. We're not supposed to agree with each other. We are given the freedom to disagree. Isn't that wonderful? that you can think the way you want to think and your minority rights are protected? Isn't that wonderful that you're free to think and believe and to pray as you choose? And that you can listen to me and you can reject what I'm saying or you can accept what I'm saying. But your right to reject or accept is protected. I love that idea because I don't fit in anywhere, okay? If my minority rights are not protected, I'm going to jail for sure because I don't agree with piracy, drugs, and slavery, and I'm willing to say I reject the war in the Ukraine. You know, that's a fairly brave thing to say because it could come up before very long that there's some kind of act passed that makes such talk seditious, and that happens from time to time during wartime in our country. 
where people who actually don't agree with the violence and the war are considered traitors. Okay. He who wins the war writes the history. That's another thing we'll have to start talking about. <clears throat> Anyhow, I sat there with this party leader, big guy. You know, there's only one more step after this guy. And I said, you know, there's a lot of people, this is last February, a long time ago, there's a lot of people interested in election issues. And he looked at me, and he, he kind of barked at me. Don't ever bring that up again. And I said, whoa. Now, because I have a, a some significant martial training, I tend to respect lines of authority. He said, don't bring it up. I never brought it up. He's my boss. Doesn't mean I wasn't thinking about it. And there's all this activism that's going on outside the party because the party really doesn't want to deal with this election issue for many reasons, coming from the RNC on down. So there's all these outside the party groups that are dealing with it, kind of like an NGO or a community activism. You know, the Republican Party has to get as good and working with the outside groups as the Democrat Party is. So all these outside groups are working, and they're doing, they're doing their thing, and I think that's great. <clears throat> but a young party activist who's in the party, he's an officer, he's fairly senior, decided that to drive engagement, to bring people in, he, was, he wanted to drive this narrative about election integrity because he knows it's important to people. So he pushed through and sponsored a party event about this issue. And we went. Very interesting. So we went from don't ever talk about this again, don't talk about this, to, hey, we're talking about it. That's politics. That is, a, that is the success of we the people. Now, I'm not take, I don't know about all these election integrity issues specifically. I'm not here to push you in any direction. Whatever you think, you've got to do the, your own work on this issue. You got to do your own work. Like when they tell you over and over again, free and fair elections. We have free and fair elections. We have free and fair elections. We have free and fair elections. Does it sound a little bit like a mantra? It does to me. Like, I don't care about history. I don't care about history. I don't care about history. Don't care about history. Free and fair elections. Free and fair elections. Free and fair elections. Free and fair elections. Are you getting my point? You know, Goebbels who was in charge of the Ministry of Propaganda in Nazi Germany, said, if you tell a lie often enough and with enough intensity, it'll become the truth. In other words, two plus two can equal five. If you put enough into it. Something for us all to contemplate. I went to this meeting. It was very interesting. And here's what I came away with. You know, <clears throat> there's many issues that are being used to polarize the American people. Elections is just the next. The controllers, the technocrats, who are interested in taking all of our freedoms because freedom is messy and takes a lot of resources to manage. These people don't want to manage free people. It requires self-governance, People go off in other directions. There's free elections, allegedly. 
elect free and fair elections, free and fair elections, free and fair elections. It takes a lot to manage this stuff. Why? We have robots now, artificial intelligence. We don't need all these <clears throat> consumers muddying up the world. I mean, I, you got to discover it for yourself. I'm not going to go any farther. It's just like the matrix. You have to see it for yourself. You got to go to the UN website and read everything they have to say about world population. You got to go study Margaret Sanger. You got to read about eugenicists and eugenics and what they think and how they have completely taken over our entire educational system. You have to understand scientism and the language of science. You know, <clears throat> here's another one. I don't want to get into this too far because it gets a little bit costly. But go read Genesis 11, 1 through 9 about the Tower of Babel. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. In other words, the arrogance that comes with human reason is aimed at overthrowing belief in God, even back at the time of Genesis. So when we have reason, its evil twin is arrogance. And we have to understand that um, everything that has a benefit has a cost. And the benefit of discussing free and fair elections and getting down to all the ways that they could be Rigged. Rigged. And I'm going to tell you why I think there's some validity here. If you're not from Minnesota, everybody in Minnesota that's in the party knows this. And when I tell this to people outside the state, they, they go, really? They can't even believe it. But the first bill that the uh, Democrat Party passed here in Minnesota when they took control of the state was illegal residents of the state. That would be called illegal immigrants can apply for and receive a Minnesota state driver's license. And every law enforcement organization in the state supported that. What a surprise. Back the blue. Back the blue. Back the blue. Come on. Let's wake up from our, sl our slumbers now. Every law enforcement agency in the, in the state of Minnesota supported legislation that gave a driver's license to every illegal immigrant in the state. That was the first bill. The second bill, you're automatically registered to vote with a driver's license. Okay, I don't need to go any farther than that. It's legal now to have a voter registration for an illegal immigrant that has a driver's license. That's legal, which means we have to depend on our election officials to sort out this drama. Okay, do you think we need to talk about this? Yes, we do need to talk about it. And we need to have strategies to deal with it. But this is such a divis divisive issue because we have all these people on one side saying these elections are rigged and nothing will matter unless we fix the election issue. And we got all these other people that are saying that's subversive and undermining of the American republic and our democracy 
and they must be suppressed. It's a, it's, it's the gateway to terrorism. Wow. Talk about division. Oh, I have a very simple solution. How about a national unity day? National day of unity. Unity day. It's a new holiday. It just occurred to me when I was sitting there watching this election integrity thing go down. Actually, it was an election fraud thing, but I like to call it election integrity or voter rights. How are we going to message this? Voter rights. I want to get off of the polarization. Let's have a national day. of. Let's have two days. Hey, Democrats, would you like two days paid vacation? Two extra paid days. We're going to give us... We're going to give the American people a election day and a day off national holiday where we're going to celebrate being Americans, where we're going to celebrate our Republican form of government and our democratic right to vote. And we're all going to get together and we're going to have barbecues and parties and it's going to be all over television, the history of our country. And we're going to love each other because we're going to come together in a holiday a holy day to exercise our civic responsibility to vote. This is the kind of thinking we need. We don't need people continuously pouring kerosene on a fire, making us hate each other. Every place there's a wound, let's find healing. Every place there's division, let's build unity. Are we afraid to talk to each other? I just said, Send me your strongest champion. I want to talk to him. I want to, I want to film it and live stream it. I want a record. And if my ass gets kicked in an argument, I'm going to be joyful about it. I will not be embarrassed. It is not getting knocked down that matters. It's getting up. And remember what I said? The number one predictor of mortality is the inability to get up off the floor. The number one predictor of longevity is the ability to get up off the floor. So if I get knocked down, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to get up informed by how my ass got kicked. Please come and try to kick my ass. Oh, that'd be just great. Give me your best neocons. Send them on over. Why are holidays, I'm talking about a National Day of Unity, a holiday, why are holidays important in cultures? Well, the most important function of a holiday ritual is in its role of maintaining and strengthening family ties. After we go vote, we go home, we can have a holiday meal together with our family. I have a lot of people in my family who are Marxists, and they don't like me. I'd love to have a holiday for them to come together with me. Can we create mechanisms where we're not hating each other? Where we could come together in unity? In fact, for relatives who live apart, holiday rituals may be the glue that holds the family together. What happens when we have a family, a strong family? Oh, oh, maybe we don't need as much government dependency because we're going to be interdependent with our family members. You know, in China, in China is kicking our ass. You know, there's no Social Security really there. Really, the elderly are interdependent with their children. 
The children are proud of their responsibility to take care of their parents, and they do. Most of the time, or much of the time, the elderly parents actually live with the children. They support them in every way, emotionally, financially. It's a completely different cultural organization. Why is the Chinese Communist Party so strong? Well, one of the reasons is they don't have a welfare state. They expect the people to take care of themselves. Oh, isn't that an interesting comment? That's what we're supposed to be, and that's what we've given up. And who did that to us? Oh, those Europeans, that European intellectual tradition, the Marxist tradition. You know, when you go to China or you go to Vietnam, you go to these communist countries, they always tell you, we're communist, but in our own Chinese way. Okay? It's very interesting, isn't it? Traditional celebrations are the core aspects of any culture, whether it is a wedding, a harvest festival, a religious holiday, or a national observance. Celebrations are woven tightly into our overall cultural identity. A holiday is a sacred day. It's different than a regular day, which is profane. Anthropologists talk about the sacred and profane. If you have a 40-day voting period, that's profane. If you have a two-day national unity holiday, that's sacred. Maybe that will restore some sacred honor and some integrity into what it is to be an American. You know, this sounds funny, right? Like, that could never happen. We have 12 Senate districts in Congressional District 3 here in Minnesota. It's about eight 900,000 people. And I have an associate of mine who's listening to this, and he's going to hold 12 town halls in each one of these Senate districts to promote the idea of a national unity holiday, a two-day paid vacation where we're going to vote together as the American people. Now, the Democrats, they're going to fight it because it's, you know, this 40 days is going to go down to two days. But I want to know how many Democrats are listening that would like to have two more paid holidays. We will pay you your wage to join our holiday. Yes, it's called spoils. Now, when we're going to start to train Ukrainian pilots in using F-16s and sell F-16s for billions and billions and billions of dollars and every other kind of military technology, and we're $32 trillion of debt, and we the people are paying for it, hey, two days. I'm an employer. I'll pay for it. I will give all my employees two days off, and I'm not a rich man, and I will pay for it because it will create unity and family and cohesiveness. That's what we want. We got to think out of the box. Oh, you can't change this. It's always been that way. Well, it's wrong. It's not working. We better change it or we're going to lose our freedom. So, you know, it's not that big of a deal to work on something that your survival depends on. My survival depends on this. Traditions are important because they help maintain continuity between generations. Oh, maybe that's why Christmas went from being a religious holiday 
to a giant money-spending opportunity. You know, when I was young, there were some presents under the tree. But Christmas was about going to church and having a dinner with your family afterwards and celebrating the birth of Christ. That's what it was about. Now it's about competitive present buying, okay? It's how much money is spent in the preparation for Christmas so that our economy benefits. Christmas has nothing to do with our economy. What kind of scam is that? See, there I go. Get mad, and there goes my voice. I'm going to heal that with you. Christmas is a purely spiritual affair. Do you know in traditional culture, for example, Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, you know on the Sabbath day, Orthodox Jews can't even turn on lights. They can't turn on their stove. They can't get in a car. They have to walk everywhere they go. There's no manner of work. Go look it up in the Old Testament. That's the back pages of your New Testament. You can find it. There is no manner of work allowed on the Lord's day, the Sabbath day. And why is that? Because traditionally we knew to maintain any kind of spiritual orientation, we needed to focus one day out of seven on purely spiritual concerns. That's why such a great effort has been made to materialize that day. When I was young, couldn't buy gas on Sunday. Certainly couldn't go to the bar and there was no malls. Now, what's Sunday about? Going to the mall, spending money, watching the NFL, church for one hour, go to a brunch at a restaurant, spend a quick hundred, and get home in time for kickoff. You know the Sabbath day is an all-day affair of family. You get that you, you have to walk there. It takes like an hour to walk there. You get there about 8 in the morning. You dust off your prayer ritual. You pray. You pray till about noon. Then you have a lunch with the community, community gathering. Everybody just talks about the community. It's not political. It's community. So happy to see you. Rest for a little while, then pray again for a couple hours. Then walk home. The whole day is about the world of the Spirit. If we're going to save our freedom, we're going to have to start to consider rituals that bring about unity and a focus on spiritual matters. And nothing is more spiritual than voting together as a people so that we maintain our tradition of freedom. Self-evident truths. We got to work on this. Now, everybody can get down with this if we message it correctly. Traditions help keep languages and cultures alive by providing a way for people to communicate their identity to others. And what is my identity? I'm an American. That's my identity. Say it loud and say it proud. I'm an American. Something to think about. Time for new beginnings. It's time for new beginnings. What we're doing is not working. I'll give you a list of new beginnings. Things that I'm thinking about that I'd like you to join me in. When we have political meetings, pray first and then say the pledge. I talked to a very senior person in the party. 
nationally senior, not statewide, nationally. Doesn't come any more senior than that. What comes first, the pledge or the prayer? The pledge. B.S. It's God, country, family, not country, God, family. Our first allegiance is to the world of the spirit because we're telling the truth. The truths we hold self-evident. They are enduring. They were true 5,000 years ago, and they're going to be true 5,000 years from now. But our government, our current government, from time to time, remember, strong men make prosperous times. Prosperous time make weak men. When we have weak men, we get corrupt governments. Those corrupt governments, governments spawn strong leaders who come forward to restore the honor of the people. It's a cycle, a circle. It's not a straight line. So we're going to be perpetually coming back to this problem. It doesn't, it doesn't go away. It's baked into the nature of what it is to be alive, cost and benefit. So our first allegiance has to be to infinity, to timelessness, to things that we don't understand, things that we know are out there that exist, but it's over our human intellect. We have to acknowledge that our reason is not the most powerful force in the world. When we, like John Locke, rely on our reason and say that's what, you know, that's our big gun, let's shoot it, arrogance comes, and, well, <clears throat> every manner, manner of perversity is right behind our reason because all you got to do is turn on the television and we can see every manner of perverse, perversity because to some people that seemed reasonable. They've used our reason against us. But when we subordinate our reason to a creator, that grants us unalienable rights. Hey, the oscillations, the yin and yang, the cost benefit will be a little less onerous than it is today. So we pray first and then we pledge our allegiance to the country. There's an idea. Every time we have a meeting, why don't we get together and talk a little bit about American history of which we don't know anything about, particularly when we have senior party leaders walking around saying, history doesn't matter, history doesn't matter, history doesn't matter. Oh, I want to swear, okay? It's bubbling up inside of me. But I'm trying not to do that. Unnecessary. I'm going to try to do nothing divisive because it's divisive to swear. Now, do I think swearing is against religion? No. It's a word. What's against religion is using God's name in vain, which is frequently done in, in the party wrapping ourselves in the cloth of faith when in reality our business model is slavery, drugs, and piracy. That is swearing. That is an abomination. Using a bad word, hey, it's a word. But because some people are offended, I'm not going to use those words because anything that divides the country and detracts from unity at this time, if it's not absolutely necessary, why do it? Because what is necessary is unity, a 70% message. We need a 70% message so that we can rally around the restoration of the United States of America, and boy, is it worth it. 
So every time we get together as a group, why not talk about American history? You've been watching this podcast. Do you enjoy some of this history I bring forward? I hope you do. I mean, if you don't, let me know. If you don't, you're probably not watching anymore. But if you enjoy it, the reason I'm sharing it with you is, number one, it's an exploration for me. I'm getting the most benefit because I'm discovering it for myself. But I'm sharing it for you in the hopes that you'll go look for it and discover it, that we'll all become investigators and and students of, of our American history because it can unite us because there's so many great stories in our history that actually can bring us together as the American people. Miracles. There are miracles. And I want to talk about that so that we have a way to share a common history. That's part of culture. That's why such a great effort is made to say slavery was the original sin of the country. And of course it's a sin but not of our country. It was put upon us by an alien ideology that sent people here to prosecute their business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. We, the American people, actually fought a war that killed 10% of the population of this country to end the business model of slavery. Yes, slavery can be criticized, the people that engaged in it can be criticized. But what about the 10% of the people that died, gave their lives in a war to end slavery for all the different reasons? I mean, some of the reasons had nothing to do with freeing the slaves. We've talked about it. I know it. But what about the people that actually died because of their faith that all men were created equal right in our founding document? Can't we talk about that? or what, what our country did during World War II, or how we came together this time and that time, and all the great things in our history. And I, and I have to say, I spend too much time dwelling on the bad things. There's so many great things. Let's discover them together. But speaking of the bad things, hey, that elephant, that elephant, it's a symbol of the bad things. I was at this meeting. Those of you that know me and those that, of you that listen to me know that my entire goal, that what I'm doing, the, the sum of my whole goal is to restore a spiritual focus in American life that has been intentionally dis, you know, extinguished by humanists, Darwinists, that their sole goal is to destroy the, the Judeo— there I go, get mad— See, we all have things to work on. When you get in the ring, when you get in the ring, your weaknesses are revealed. The entire goal, the total goal, the sum goal, the purpose, the raison d'etre of these people is to destroy Judeo-Christian traditions. That's why they're doing what they're doing. They're ushering in a new religion, and to usher that religion in, they have to destroy the previous religion first, and they're doing a fantastic job of it. And the elephant is a symbol that is associated for many of these people with what's wrong with the Republican Party. Racism, anti-Semitism, 
xenophobia, homophobia. We in the party, we don't know how other people think about us. So we could change that symbol. I don't say make a new party. I'm saying we need a new beginning. We need, we need new language and we need new symbols. When I was at that meeting, one of the presenters said, if you're a Christian, raise your hand. And everybody's arm shot up like a Nazi salute if you were looking at it from the outside. Was that really necessary? I'm not saying that people are not to be Christians. Quite the contrary. I want there to be a Judeo-Christian focus on the values and the truth that we hold self-evident that are granted to us by a creator. That's what's missing. But what about the people that are coming in from the outside that we want to convince that view us, as Governor Romney said, and I played it on three successive podcasts at the 1964 GOP National Convention, the problem of Lily White. Lily White. He said Protestantism, but really it's just the Lily White issue. All these young black people, for example, that know the Democrat Party is not serving them. They want to get out of it. They want freedom. And they look over at the Republicans, and what they see is racism. I'm not saying you're racist. I'm talking about perception. What can we do to allow people to leave the Democrat plantation and come over into the world of freedom and self-determination and well-being? Those are the questions. New beginnings. We're talking about new, new beginnings. Let's dump the term grassroots. Let's never use it again. I'm an American citizen. The people that use the term grassroots, I mean, some of them, I mean, they don't mean anything by it. And it, maybe it just developed, you know, organically. Maybe at one time it was a positive. But grassroots, the dirt, and a blade of grass, not very strong. We are American citizens. We are not the grassroots. We're self-governing American citizens. Let's talk about the value of our citizenship and that we are citizens. I don't want to be a grassroot. Okay, I'm an American citizen. I am granted certain unalienable rights by a creator. I'm not a blade of grass. I'm a human being. I'm pro-human beings. I'm pro-human dignity. I'm pro-human freedom. And I'm pro-well-being. I am not a grassroot. Let's dump volunteers. What's a volunteer? A volunteer means, hey, today I don't feel like doing it. I'm a volunteer. I don't have to do this. Where is the cultural imperative on self-governance if you can opt in or opt out as a volunteer? We're not volunteers. We're American citizens. When we get benefits, there are costs. That's why there's such a great effort to make the benefit of being an American citizen go to zero. Because then it doesn't matter that we have citizenship. Isn't that interesting? We're American citizens. American citizens, not volunteers. And we get a benefit from our citizenship, and that benefit has a cost. I'm not a volunteer. I'm being an American. My identity is I'm an American. I'm talking about cultural changes to restore 
what it is to be a free and self-governing people. It's not going to happen unless we work at it. We have to, what we're talking about is changing our expectations about what self-governance is. That's a cultural mechanism. It's upstream of politics. New beginnings. We have to change our society from a user orientation to a giver orientation. Or as John Kennedy said in his 1961 inaugural address, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And he was a Democrat. Well, he wouldn't be a Democrat in this Democrat party. That would be sacrilegious for the Democrat. Because remember what the Democrat does. The Democrat creates policies that shackle the people in dependence and create unwellness. That dependence is what the Democrat is seeking to create. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That'd be a great one to, to say over and over again. doesn't matter that he's a Democrat. It's John Kennedy. He's an American martyr. He's an American martyr with his brother Robert Kennedy, with Martin Luther King, and with Malcolm X. Four martyrs. Four martyrs. Martyrdom is very powerful. Let us understand who these people were and why they gave their lives and start to talk about it. We need member benefits. We need benefits for participation in politics. We need spiritual benefits. The benefit of well-being is kind of the overarching one, which means we actually have to foster well-being in our political activities. Tell the truth. Winning is not a well-being strategy. Telling the truth is. People win all the time by cheating. That's not well-being. That's unwellness. We tell the truth. We don't backstab. We don't plot. We don't manipulate. We tell the truth one to another, and we demand it of our leaders. There's a change. Member benefits, that's the spiritual side. What about tangible member benefits, like food co-ops, like supporting affiliated businesses, like creating our own credit unions, our own political economy, perhaps even our own security? We have to create benefits for participation in politics. And we can do it. Do you know why there's no benefits? Because they want volunteers from the grassroots. Because they don't want anything to change. They don't, when I say they, I mean the uni party, the party hierarchy. They're listening to me. They don't like me because they know I'm about real change. I want the business model change. Slavery, drugs, piracy. That business model's got to go. And that's the root of our country. That's big change. Big change. How are we going to get that change to take place? Join free people. We're going to make it easy for you very soon. New messaging, well-being, the sanctity of life, not necessarily how it's applied just to a young woman who's pregnant, but gun violence, suicide, car accidents, 60% of the people have chronic disease, military you know, adventure. We have lost the sanctity of life as a culture. 
Let's restore it. Let's not just be focused on one symptom of the root cause, which we don't have any we don't have any emphasis, we don't have any allegiance to the sanctity of human life. That's the core idea. But we're focused on one symptom. Let's go full spectrum. Let's take the pressure off these young women. Let's look at all these other issues too. And let's make it one platform about life, human life, human well-being, human dignity. Let's re-message. We're living in a debt society. What the hell is that? Why are we not living in an equity society? We talked about the word equity was hijacked, and that's for a reason. We don't need to borrow money. We need to live in a world where we're developing equity, which is a kind of financial safety. $32 trillion in debt. Do you feel nervous about it? I do. Fed's going to raise the interest rates yet again. Here comes the unemployment. We've got groups in this country that have been wronged. Can we find a way to reindustrialize the country and give them a leg up and get involved in a restoration of our own manufacturing? Some would call this reparations. I call it giving people a chance to participate. Because guess what, Republicans? You're paying every month taxes that are going to reparations. You know what that's called? The welfare state. You're just paying forever. That's what the Democrat wants. The Democrat creates policies of dependency and unwellness. And we're paying every month on the installment plan. How about a one-time payoff and let's all be interdependent and kill the dependency? There's There's an idea. How about the end of empire? Why are we all over the world as an empire? We're supposed to provide for the common defense, not provide for an empire. That's the British model. The British Empire, they got us fronting for them. Not a good job. Not a good role. Income taxes. What the hell is that? We're disincentivizing work. We need a consumption tax and disincentivize materialism. Just an opinion. I'm I'm not saying that these are what we're going to do. These are called ideas. And to have a good idea, you have to have a lot of ideas. So please join me. The end of isms. Like... Liberalism, Nazism, same thing to me. A political strategy aimed at operationalizing a new religion. Let's look at root causes and not be fooled by strategies. So we've gone over a lot today, and I want to thank you for for joining me. I want your best people to come talk to me. Send me your champion. When I, be, when I defeat your champion in debate, and I will, I will look at your group and I will say, is there anyone else? Step up. Get in the ring. Don't hide. And I urge all of you to do this in every group you're in. Let's talk it through with respect and eloquence. And on that note, thanks for joining me. I wish you well-being. I wish you a great day, great week, and I look forward to seeing you soon again.